This is Chelsea Wingo. And I'm Amy Covell. And this is our podcast, Hashtag Life Goals. Each week, we examine one of our life goals and figure out what steps we need to take to make them a reality. So come join us. It's going to be fun. This is Chelsea Wingo, and this is Hashtag Life Goals. This week is going to be a little different because there's a lot that's happening offline. Amy right now is currently working on a film set, working her ass off, and Nico and Marcus are working on their own life goals. So unfortunately, we will not be able to bring to you a full episode for this podcast, but we do have something in our, our back storage data from previous episodes that we think might be perfect for this week. A while back, we had the episode Career Milestone Number 1, where our guest was Tim Alba, who works at UCLA for screenwriting. And I am lucky enough to have him as my lecturer, but also work for him as a TA for the program. So there was a section where Amy, Tim, and I discussed typical writing tropes that new writers might fall into. And Tim provided his insight on how to avoid them and how to progress forward as a writer. So for this week, for Hashtag Life Goals, I present to you career milestone number one, part two. All right, then how about for uh, a nice closure? I will restate the 10 common reasons why your scripts are rejected from IndieWire, and I'll get your thoughts on those. Cool. All righty. So number one, the scenes are void of meaningful conflict. Ah, yes. Conflict is king. Um, you know, we as normal humans don't wake up in the morning and think, you know, who am I going to screw with today, right? Uh, well, maybe we do. Um, in this Not day and typically, age. although I do worry that certain people do. Yeah, but yeah, for sure. But I think um, I think that's one of the most difficult things for writers, because new screenwriters, because in our normal lives, all we do is avoid conflict as much as we can, right? And so to then sit down and have to throw people into conflict constantly um, mm-hmm. is difficult to mm-hmm. say the least. And, and I would agree, it's one of the areas that's most lacking in most scripts. And so, you know, you really, but the easiest way to find conflict and within a scene, and this again, is super simple. When you sit down to write a scene, just ask yourself who's in it, what do they want and what are they willing to get it? And whoever's in the scene, they have to have different objectives. Mm-hmm. And then the conflict comes from the pursuit of those objectives. Now it doesn't have to be, I want to stop a meteor from hitting earth. And the other character is, you know, an evil scientist who is manipulating the meteor. I mean, that's one level of conflict, but another level of conflict can just be, you wake up in the morning with your spouse and you're late for work and you want to get out of bed and get to work, but your spouse wants to have morning sex, right? <laughs> Two different things, right? Two different objectives, conflicting goals, conflict comes from that. Mm -hmm. And I think, you know, so there's a lot of layers of conflict and another type of conflict that then ultimately exists in your script when you um, execute it correctly is that conflict that kind of hangs over the movie, but is not on the page. So for example, the example I always use for that is from Up, um, Mm -hmm. the Pixar film where we've got Carl who is the older gentleman who wants to get his house to Paradise Falls. And, you know, we saw his backstory his past he was married the best they wanted three minutes to have a, in the film oh yeah you know it's good when your 
at Pixar watching the movie with everyone who spent five years making the movie and they're bawling too five minutes into the movie. Um, but you know, we saw his whole life and one aspect of his life was trying to have a family and they never could, right? His wife was never able to have a child. And then, so what do we do on the, in the journey in the movie? We team them up with a kid because then <laughs> there's conflict. That's a conflict that's above the movie because what's happening is he is constantly reminded through Russell of the thing that he could never have with his wife. Mm-hmm. Does anybody ever say that in the movie? No. no. But that's something as a reader, when you're reading that script, you're like, holy shit, you know, they've created this another level of conflict that isn't on the page, but it's in the mind of the viewer. Right, mm-hmm. and they bring it bring it home at the, that very last scene when they're sitting there eating ice cream counting cars. Beginning of the movie? Blue one. Promise of the end. Red one. All right. Um, so conflict is key. Yep. There's the answer to number one. All right. Number two, the script has a by-the-numbers execution. <laughs> yeah. Again, <laughs> I think it goes back to, um, yes, we, you know, I do teach just, you know, whether I'm teaching a workshop at UCLA or a private workshop or I'm consulting with somebody, there is, there are like nine tentpole moments that I think exist in movies, and I think that they happen around a certain place within each story. So like I said, in the first 10 minutes, you know, we should know character, situation, and problem. Usually around 20 minutes in, we present what I call the central question of the movie, which is, so in Up, it's will they get the house to Paradise Falls? You know, and 17 minutes into the movie, that house is lifting up off the ground and they're on the journey. And then everything that happens from there on out exists to get us closer to achieving the goal, which is getting the house to Paradise Falls. All right. So can you say that's a formula? No. Well, that exists in Tangerine, too. Ten minutes into Tangerine, we know who the main character is, what her situation is, what her problem is, and the stated goal is she's got to find her boyfriend. It's the exact same prem- It's the exact same thing. Right, because it's not a formula. It's framework. Right, exactly. And so I do think there are specific things that should happen in specific places, but where people fail when it comes to that is trying to square that, trying to shove that square peg into the round hole. So in other <laughs> words, that, you actually. have characters, <laughs> well, uh, I need something to happen here because this is what Tim says. So then they just have something happen there, to, but it's not inherent to the journey of the character. Right. It's something that needs to be cut because it doesn't actually move, the, propel the story forward. Right. Or it's just not something the character would do, but the writer's having he or she do it. Because, well, that's what's supposed to happen. Yeah, forcing here. it into the situation. Yeah, it has to it come natural. organically from the pursuit of the goal. Mm-hmm. All right, number three the protagonist is a standard issue hero, and other characters are stereotypes as well. Right, right. <laughs> I'll just go back to what I said write what you feel, not what you know. Mm-hmm. Okay. And I think that's what makes your characters unique and different. Um, you know, I think, I think a lot of time, well, look at 500 days of summer and, you know, some people can make fun of the, the quirky, you know, female protagonist trope, right? Mm-hmm. Um, that's, that's her brand. I mean, that's who she is, you know, yeah. Zoe Deschanel, the actress, mm-hmm. right? Um, at least that's what she plays. Um, so of course that's a perfect casting for that role. Mm-hmm. Um, now, but the problem is a movie like that comes out, does really well, and then all you see for a year and a half is a bunch of knock, you know, a bunch of scripts emulating that, you yeah, know, yeah. copying that. And quirky for quirky's sake doesn't work. There has to be a reason behind it, right? Which, mm-hmm. t- again, takes us back to, I think there's those three, you know, there's a pillar to a character. 
and the pillars to the characters, they need to have a defining characteristic, mm -hmm. right? Something that defines them. And it has to be, um, it can't be like a physical characteristic. You know, being tall is not a defining characteristic. Um, that's a physical attribute. You know, that defining characteristic is something you have to be able to arc over. It's you have to be able to change over. Mm -hmm. um, that's one. Then there should be a paradox. So in other words, based on what the defining characteristic is, there should be another layer to the character that makes you go, whoa, uh, that's weird. So like, for example, Mel Gibson in Lethal Weapon, world's greatest cop, but every night he goes home and he puts a gun in his mouth and almost kills himself. That's the paradox. You know, it's like you're like, and what it does is it creates what I call a, a need to know in the character that mm -hmm. creates mystery around the character. Why is he the way he is? Then uh, you have to find something that humanizes the character. So I would argue what humanizes Mel Gibson in that movie is he's got a great sense of humor. And the fact that Danny Glover's character's family adores him, that legitimizes him in the audience's eyes. So you have a defining characteristic, um, a paradox, something that humanizes them. And then the last thing is a flaw. And nine times out of ten, the flaw is also the defining characteristic. Um, and it is that defining characteristic that creates the story. So I'll do another Pixar movie, Finding Nemo. What is, <laughs> what is Marlin's defining Pixar characteristic? Movie. Yeah, Marlin's <laughs> defining characteristic is he's overprotective. Why is he overprotective? Because his family got eaten except for Nemo, right? Mm -hmm. Okay. So what is Nemo's defining characteristic? Nemo's defining characteristic is he's rebellious. Why is Nemo rebellious? Because his dad is overprotective. Mm -hmm. right? <laughs> if Nemo isn't rebellious, the story never happens. He doesn't because, touch the butt. Exactly. Because Nemo does that because he's rebellious. So again, the story comes from the character's defining characteristic. Then what do we do? Which is classic Pixar. You take a character who has a, and that's, you know, his defining characteristic of being um, overprotective. That's also his flaw. I mean, it's what right. creates his problems. Well, right. Cause then you're pairing him with this character he can't control. She's so unpredictable. <laughs> and she's, and she's almost like someone um, with a severe, you know, disability because it's like you cannot expect things of her because she is not capable of doing them and so you have to adjust to them mm -hmm. and that's real hard for him right yeah well, and to take that just one step further you know what you're looking for you know most movies revolve around a core central relationship and so in that mm -hmm. movie i mean the plot is finding nemo you yep. know when does nemo disappear 17 minutes into the movie mm -hmm. um but more importantly you know, about that teaming is that you take a guy who can't forget the past. You know, that's why he's overprotective. He cannot let go of the past. You team him up with somebody who can't remember what happened five minutes ago. Mm -hmm. And within that relationship, there's the potential for change. Yeah. Um, and that's what you want in a core center relationship. Usually the extremes between those two main characters is not big enough. And therefore, there's no conflict, yeah. right? Mm -hmm. And those characters feel rote and, you know... Uh, What's the what's the word you used? A derivative or derivative. just yeah. not interesting? Stereotyped right? and standard. Because and and the last thing I'll say on that question is you know and this goes back to being afraid of conflict and writing what you feel instead of what you know. Um, you know, uh, too many times uh, a main character doesn't have a flaw, or the flaw is minimal. And why is that? Because the main character 99% of the time is the writer. And yep. so, again, mm -hmm. we'll go back to conflict. We don't want to look at our from flaws. conflict. We don't want to look at us as being flawed, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Especially not when we're writing, because when we're writing, we're um, almost um, trying to project the image we want of ourselves. Yep. 
And so there we're really trying to avoid the things that are flawed in us. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Definitely. Uh, Number four, the villains are cartoonish, evil for the sake of evil. Okay. We'll go go back to your, your, in your lead up uh, about, you know, what I say is, um, and I'm sure other people have said it too, is that, you know, the villain is the hero of his or her own story too. Um, there you go. That's what it and, was. Yeah. And so, you know, we can't dismiss them. They have their own story. And and I think the best villains are sympathetic people. You know, I think a lot of times you read villains who feel, um, you know, one note because they're just evil because they were born that way. Right. <laughs> um, which is OK. I've been in studio meetings where, you know, people are racking their brains trying to come up with this, you know, right. tortured backstory. And then someone says, I just haven't be born that way. Um, well, what I love about, you know, ones that have uh, that are sympathetic is because that creates conflict for the audience because mm-hmm. then they're like, oh, my God, why do I feel bad for this guy? Yeah, why yeah. am I kind of rooting for him? Yeah. And so then it's like conflict on a whole separate fourth wall level. Yeah, no. One of the movies that we just recently watched was in Bruges and uh, Ray Fiennes plays the antagonist, but he has a family and he has morals. So you feel somewhat mm-hmm. sympathetic for this character, even though he's out to kill Colin Farrell. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah, I think, um, you know, so I think, uh, you know, again, the flaw is the key. When I'm developing a character, I always think, what is this person most afraid of? And then Mm -hmm. you force them to face that. Yeah. All right. Number five, the character logic is muddy. Characters, actions, or motivation isn't clear or believable. Yeah. So I think on that front, too, it's funny. It's all kind of playing back into flaw, right? (laughs) Yeah. Um, And so, you know, you want your character to be obsessed with the goal. You know, a lot of times in class, you know how AFI always puts out these like top 10 lists, you know, top 10 rom-coms, top 10, whatever, top 10 movies. And so, um, you know, one of their top 10 lists is like, you know, top 10 movies of the last 50 years or whatever. And, you know, it's, it's like, oh, probably Gone with the Wind, Raging Bull, The Godfather, Mm. uh, um, you know, I can't think of the other ones off the top of my head. Some Woody Allen film, Uh, probably. Lawrence of Arabia, (laughs) um, I think Singing in the Rain is actually on it. That um, was one of my favorites. Uh, Singing up. in the Rain is one of those perfect examples of the Hollywood musical. Yeah, yeah exactly. classic Hollywood back in the olden days, yeah. But in most of those films, uh, Citizen Kane, for example, I mean, the protagonist is obsessed with a goal, something. So yeah. he's obsessed with Rosebud, trying to figure out what Rosebud is. You know, Raging Bull, he's obsessed with success with boxing, same as Rocky, right? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, but... Think about what the paradox is. So like with Rocky, he's obsessed with being, um, you know, a professional boxer or a champion boxer. But deep down inside, he's a pussycat, right? I mean, he has pet turtles. He loves Adrian, right? So that's the dichotomy of the character is that, you know, by day he pummels people in a ring, but by night he's super soft and sweet, right? And so that's what... But we un- we have to understand a character's motivation and why they're pursuing something. Mm-hmm. And I think the a really great example of that is Wall Street, um, uh, the Michael with Michael Douglas and Charlie Sheen, right? Yeah. And Charlie Sheen is obsessed with success on Wall Street, which isn't necessarily, you know, at that time when the movie was made was not a necessarily rootable goal. And probably I would argue even more so today. Um, right. But there's a great scene about halfway through the movie where he has lunch with his dad, played by his dad, Martin Sheen. Yep. And his dad plays is a uh, blue collar airplane mechanic. And suddenly you're like, I get it. 
this is why he's motivated to be rich Mm because he doesn't want to be like his dad. Mm. Um, And that is one, believable, right? Two, universal. Three, it has an inherent emotion behind it. Mm -hmm. Those are the keys to making an interesting character and interesting motivations that we can root for. Mm -hmm. Number six, the female characters are underwritten. Uh, do you have like three years to talk about this one? <laughs> uh, I'll give you an example from a film we watched, my wife and I watched last night. We watched Tag. Um, uh, oh. Cute idea. Uh, not the best movie not, ever not made. Not great execution. But, and, you know, it's okay. It is what it is. For, you know, Friday night on HBO is fine. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's a female character in the movie, a journalist for the Wall Street Journal, who goes along for the ride but has zero purpose in the oh, movie. No. So, of course, as jaded Hollywood people were like, oh, well, you know, she must know somebody. She's a di- yeah, it's like a diversity hire kind yeah, of thing. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. You're like, I mean, and which is awful for her, um, but you can't blame her. Mm-hmm. But the character had zero purpose to be even be in the movie. Um, other than she was female and attractive. Um, And so, you know, but I think it's a great time now uh, for not only female writers, but also, you know, writers of color and of different nationalities, et cetera. And everybody's open to making stories about strong women Mm -hmm. and they should be. And, you know, I see more and more of them come across my desk every week and I get asked more and more from people in the business. Do you have, you know, uh, the next, you know, big female empowerment story. And, and, you know, a lot of people are taking, I think it's really funny, you know, look at the, what, Ocean's 8, right? Ocean's so 8, you basically yeah. just take, you know, the dude version of it and, you know, make flip it around, yeah, flip yeah. it around, yeah. which, you know, that's okay. That's fine. Um, but I think, um, more and more people are open to those types of stories, but what we really need are more and more writers who are, um, who are well-versed and open to and sympathetic to um, telling different types of stories mm-hmm. um, and specifically female writers. Uh, mm-hmm. I think it's key. Yeah, definitely. Number seven, the story is too thin, meaning 20 pages of story is spread hmm. across over a hundred pages. Yeah. So, <laughs> you know what I find all the time is that usually people think they have a movie idea that they have a story, but really all they have is a situation. Mm-hmm. Um, so, for example... Uh, Which is I, great if you're in improv. Yeah, but, yeah. <laughs> yeah, but that lasts four minutes, right? Correct. Um, if that. Yeah, exactly. And so... So what do you need for a story? You need a care of, you know, a multi-layered flawed character in the pursuit of a goal, right? Now that goal doesn't always have to be tangible. It's nice if it is cuz that's something we can film. But look at a movie like Moonlight. I mean, the goal in that film is really just for the main character to I to finally um be comfortable with who he is. Mm-hmm. And in fact, um the drug dealer character in the first act uh even says to him 20 minutes into the movie, only you can determine who you are. And then the rest of the movie is his journey to discover who he is. Right. So that's very subtle, but it's still setting us up for that's the goal. Right. It's Mm -hmm. not the stop a meteor before it hits Earth kind of goal. Yeah. Um, So that's a story that has legs, that has a lot of room, a lot of things to explore. It has a goal in it. Um, 
you know, usually when I go to weddings and people find out what I do for a living, they always got a movie they want to pitch me, right? <laughs> and, uh, you know, and one guy, I was at a wedding and I think there was a garbage strike in New York at the time. And, and he was like, you should write a movie about that garbage strike. And I'm like, well, that's a situation. What's the story? Don't. Mm-hmm. I was in a play about a garbage strike. It was horrible. <laughs> Dear world. And my right. mother's bird still sings songs from it. Yeah. Uh, but, what? <laughs> But that was a leaping off point for me to come up with a movie uh, ah. that, you know, that revolved in that world. But again, it had characters with goals and flaws and obstacles, etc. And I think too many times the reason a movie, a script falls flat on its face is that because it doesn't have those elements. Number eight, the conflict is inconsequential. Flash in the pan, the conflict arrives, is instantly solved, and the narrative just continues unaffected. Well, I think it goes back. Yeah, you definitely want um, the stakes to rise throughout your story. That's what creates conflict, right? Mm -hmm. I think too many times we see, I see scripts where the conflict in each scene gets wrapped up in the scene. And then it becomes episodic because it's like, oh, I solved my problem there. You know, for example, let's go back to the example of the couple that wakes up and you know, the husband wants to have sex and the wife needs to go to work. Um, uh, let's say, okay, there could be two scenarios, right? Um, let's say they have sex. Okay. So that wraps up that story basically within that, within that scene, right? There's no more conflict after it, Mm -hmm. but if they don't have sex, then she could still be late for work. Well, she would be late if they had sex too, probably. Um, uh, maybe not. Who knows? Um, right, but uh, one of the characters is still going to be late for work. The other one's still going to be carrying around this resentment yeah. through the day. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, what I call it is, and this shows you my age, but if you remember, for those of you who are uh, into history, you know, the whole Al Gore, George Bush, uh, mm-hmm. um, mm-hmm. election, yep. you know, there was this for hanging chads, you know, that there yep. were paper ballots where the, the hole had been picked, but the chad didn't fall off, you know, mm. and so they weren't counted or whatever. You know, I use the analogy that every scene should have a hanging chad that should then create conflict in the next scene. Too many times I see writers write a scene like that, and then there's no hangover from that scene. So in other words, the conflict gets wrapped up. It doesn't affect anything else in the story. What you want is that conflict to bleed into the next scene and then it bleeds into the next scene and bleeds into the next scene right, over and over Because what you have again. there otherwise is, is really just a sitcom. Right. Scene yeah. is, it's, a, it's a sitcom with 2D characters. Yeah. So it's not even a sitcom where you're really growing with the characters over the course of several seasons. And yeah. if you write something like that, you're not going to see several seasons. You're going to see four episodes, maybe yeah. six mm-hmm. before it gets canceled. Yeah. Have it continually flowing through with mm-hmm. maybe a big one, but then like a little bits here and there that don't really get solved until different points of the story. Correct. Yep. Correct. Ross and Rachel, of... will they, won't they? Excellent point. Yeah. yeah. The minute they sleep together, <laughs> it's no longer interesting. Yep. No. Cheers. Same thing, right? Right. Ted Danson. And, um... <laughs> and that's why the, there was, you know, only certain characters that they could do a spinoff of because there was enough there that made you go, well, what happened yeah. to Dr. Crane? Yeah. I would argue the same thing, you know, and this brings me back to another um, point that I always like to make is that movies are about watching characters become something, not be something. Right. So mm-hmm. like in the matrix, you know, the first one's awesome because it's all about Neo becoming Neo. Right. But in the second one, who cares? Cause he's already Neo. So he can just fly away whenever there's conflict. Right. Um, so, you know, you want to watch character. We, we all want to watch characters become something. Mm-hmm. Number nine, the narrative falls into a repetitive pattern. 
Yeah, I think it goes back to what we just said. You know, uh, things are episodic if everything gets wrapped up in each scene. Um, that's a pretty simple answer there. Yeah, again, it just goes back to you want you want to color outside the lines, yep. not inside the lines. Nice, I like that. I like that phrase. I might use that. And then number 10, the story begins too late in the script. <laughs> I see the smile on your face. Yeah, I mean, it just goes back to, again, like I said, you know, every movie starts at the crisis point in a character's life. And that crisis point could be something huge. Well, like, for example, Jaws. What's the opening of Jaws? I mean, oh, yeah, the woman the, gets eaten, yep. right? Now, gets granted, eaten. she's not a character in the movie, right? Um, I mean, she is for two minutes, but she doesn't come back. Um, but that sets everything in motion, right? Mm-hmm. We don't spend 10 minutes getting to know the town and getting to know that woman and watching her go to Woolworths and buy suntan lotion and then, <laughs> and then go to Old Navy and buy a bathing suit and then try and find a parking space and then go down to the beach and then decide, oh, you know what? I'm going to skinny dip instead and take off her bathing suit and go on the water and swim. No, we just start with her running into the water naked naked, and Da-dun. she gets eaten. Right. It's a Hung! Mo- right. And you read that. And here's, here's the important thing as a reader. Now, obviously that's based on a novel and, you know, has source material, but the important thing as a reader in watching in reading that script is right away, you, you know what the story is going to be. You no, know, it's a creature feature. this movie is going to be, a, I mean, it's called Jaws. <laughs> you know, it's not called 4th of July in New Hampshire. Um, uh, <laughs> that's a different movie. Um, but it's called Jaws. So then we know two minutes in that, okay, this shark is most likely going to terrorize this town and we're going to have to bring in people to stop it. I mean, you just know it. Is that a bad thing? No, that's a good thing. Because as a reader, you read so many scripts that take 20 minutes to get to that, that you don't know what the, that's a note I give writers all the time. It's like, we're 20 minutes in, and I don't know what the story is. And, and in this day and age, I mean, Jaws, you know, as a movie that's 40 years old, it was revolutionary in mm-hmm. a sense of it kind of created the storytelling techniques that we have in movies. Yeah. Right, right. It really reinvented the creature feature mm-hmm. and, and took it out of that kind of B-movie arena. Yeah. yeah. All right, so that's the end of the episode. Thank you, everybody, so much for listening. Hope you enjoyed it. Once again, if you have any ideas or suggestions of what episodes you want to hear in the future, you can always let us know at Life Goals Pod at Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. We always love to hear your ideas and want to progress forward in this journey. So once again, I'm Chelsea Wingo, and this has been Hashtag Life Goals. Have a great day. Bye. Bye.